0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today is the penultimate day in our 12 Days of Christmas essay series. The subject today is Umberto Eco's essay on WikiLeaks. some writers are best known for a piece of writing that isn't really typical of their overall output. And that's certainly true of the writer I'm talking about today, Umberto Eco. He is by far still best known for a novel, The Name of the Rose, that he published in 1980. It's, I'm sure people know this, a medieval murder mystery. It's more than that as well. It's a pretty literary book in its way. It's full of illusions and signs and symbols. It's also got a meta-textual element. It's quite playful about what a novel is. But notwithstanding all that, it was a phenomenal global bestseller. I'm pretty sure it took Echo and his publishers by surprise, and it made him rich and famous. He became an international celebrity In 1986, The Name of the Rose was turned into a film, and the film got rid of the metatextual literary stuff, focused on the murder mystery. It starred Sean Connery, and it made Umberto Eco possibly even richer and more famous. But he wasn't really a novelist. That was not his career. It was not what he did for a living. He was an academic. He was a professor of literary theory. He wrote about literature, philosophy, semiotics. A lot of what he wrote was quite technical and high concept. He was also a prolific essayist and a journalist. He had a regular column in Italian newspapers, and he commented on anything and everything. He wrote a lot about popular culture, about film, about music, and an awful lot about politics, including Italian politics. So of the many, many millions of words that Umberto Eco wrote over the course of his long professional life. The vast majority of them were nonfiction. Having said all that, I think there is a theme that connects the different facets of Eco's long writing career. After The Name of the Rose, he wrote some more fiction, including a novel called Foucault's Pendulum, not such a good title, and not such a success which was about a group of academics coming up with and then getting drawn into a conspiracy theory that they had invented. And the connecting theme is Echo's interest in signs and symbols and language and what it reveals and what it conceals and the ways in which most of the things that we might think of as being transparent, including language, a tool to allow us to see the world and to understand the world, These things are often actually ways of obscuring the truth. Language is very, very hard to use in a transparent way. And much of the world that we have built, including built around language, is very hard to read. And that helps explain one of Echo's persistent interests in his essay writing and his journalism, particularly towards the end of his life. He was fascinated by new technology and digital technology, by the promise of the digital revolution. And what he concluded quite early on was its false promise. Digital technology offered to open the world up. Transparency is one of the words most often associated with the digital revolution, certainly by its evangelists, by the people who think it's a a route to a more open, more sharing, and maybe even more caring world. And Echo believed that almost nothing that is presented to us as a transparent means of communicating is anything like that. That the openness is almost certainly concealing something else. That is the theme of the essay I'm going to talk about today. Echo wrote it quite near the end of his life. It's late in his career, but it's consistent with this, this set of interests. And it's about WikiLeaks published in 2010. Wikileaks had been going for, I think, four years at that point. Wikileaks had been founded in 2006 by, among others, Julian Assange, the Australian hacker, hacktivist. And the promise of Wikileaks was to put into the public domain things that had previously been hidden, occluded, secret. Government documents, particularly US government documents, Diplomatic cables, military communications, all of the stuff of government that the public never normally gets to see. How the people who run our world talk to each other when they think that we're not looking, or when they hope that we're not looking. WikiLeaks got access to a lot of that material and published it, often in combination with mainstream media outlets, so with The Guardian, with The New York Times, and others put into the public domain what previously none of us would have been able to see. And the promise of that was that it would result in a world in which we understood much better what was being done in our names, the secret plots and plans of the US government in military matters, in financial matters, the ways in which the people who run the world combine, conspire, collude with each other, And if we had that information, we would be much better placed to stop it, to do something about it, to complain about it, to use democratic means to resist it. That was the promise of WikiLeaks. And like the rest of the digital revolution, Echo thought that it was a false promise. It did not deliver that openness, that transparency, the revealing of what had otherwise been hidden. The way he makes his argument is to distinguish between what he calls a false scandal and a true scandal. To explain that, I want to bring in another distinction too. So there's also the distinction I think that's important here between a scandal and a crisis. What is WikiLeaks? What is it doing? And and what is the consequence of what it's revealing? Is it a crisis? Is it a scandal? What is it? My understanding of a crisis is that is what occurs when a system, a system of government, a system of finance, whatever it is, an organisation, ceases to function, ceases to function in a way that is sustainable. A crisis is a breakdown of operations. You can have a government crisis, or to take one example, the financial crisis of 2007-8, as it's sometimes known, the great financial crisis, the GFC was a genuine crisis because the global financial system stopped working. It froze. It seized up. Its mechanisms broke. Credit dried up. Banks started going bust. People couldn't move money around. Governments panicked. The thing came close to falling apart. That is a definitive crisis. A scandal, by contrast, is when an organisation or a person has something revealed about them which would otherwise be hidden and is at odds with the public face or the public performance. So a scandal emerges when there is a contrast between what we come to know and what we had previously believed. It could be about an individual's private life, a politician, a celebrity. The scandal is that this or that person is behaving in ways they didn't want us to know about, and now we know about it. There were scandals At the heart of the global financial crisis, some of the ways in which banks were behaving were scandalous. They were concealing the fact that they were trying to fix interest rates, or they were packaging up and selling derivatives in a way that wasn't sustainable. That's the scandal. The unsustainability, the consequence, leads to the crisis. So scandals and crises may go together, but they are not the same thing. And it definitely is not true that every scandal... a crisis. It's sometimes reported like that. It's tempting when talking about government scandals. This minister has been caught doing this. That minister has been caught doing that. It must be a crisis for the government. It very rarely is. A scandal very rarely means that the thing in question stops working. And sometimes a scandal reveals the way that it works. We didn't know that actually the way that this thing functions, the way it keeps going, is through the means that are normally hidden from us, the secret agreements and arrangements that keep the wheels turning. A scandal could reveal that the thing does work, just not in ways that we understood or appreciated. The people who founded WikiLeaks and put this stuff in the public domain unquestionably hoped and believed that it would result in a crisis, a crisis for government, for diplomacy, for the way that the international order was structured and run. Because by making public what had previously been hidden, it was hoped that it would make it much, much harder for it to carry on running the way that it had, that the kinds of military and financial arrangements would break down, that they required secrecy in order to function. That was the hope. And I'll come back to that. Echo has something to say about the long-term implications and consequences of what WikiLeaks were doing. But his main point is that it is what he calls not a real, but a fake scandal. And the way he makes that distinction is to say that in a real scandal, we discover something that we didn't know. There is a revelation, an exposing of the hidden thing. In a fake scandal, it's presented like that, shock, horror, this is what's going on. But if we think about it, if we think about it for a second, we realise we knew it already. None of this is new information. And that's what Echo thought was true of what WikiLeaks had been doing, by putting in the case he's particularly interested in, US government diplomatic communications, State Department emails and memos and documents into the public domain. The stuff that was going back and forth between the State Department and embassies around the world, including embassies, American embassies, in places like Italy. What it showed was that American embassies, ambassadors, diplomats, government agents were spying on the countries that they were operating in. And that included friendly countries, allied countries. It included places like Germany, where they were spying on Angela Merkel, and Italy, where they were spying on Silvio Berlusconi, and they were spying on Italian politicians. The shock horror was America spies on its friends as well as its enemies. And Echo says, we knew this. So first of all, Did anyone really believe that diplomacy is other than spying? Does anyone still believe in the old version of diplomacy, which is that an ambassador was there to present the case or the business of the country of which he or she was the ambassador to the nation in which he or she was now living? The ambassador as someone who was sent by a king to pass on a message to another king, a form of communication so that the ambassador is the conduit from the country of origin to the country that is being lived in. Does anyone in the modern world believe that that's what diplomacy is, that it's information passing out, rather than all embassies everywhere in the world seeing as their primary job to gather information, to draw it in from the place where they are based, and pass it back to the powers that be in the country that they come from, back not to the king, but to the president, to the secretary of state, back to the people in Washington. Anyone who believes that, Echo says, hasn't noticed how the world has changed, not just in the last few years, but in the last few hundreds of years. Diplomats are spies, in the sense that another example of a fake scandal would be during the Cold War, and this happened all the time, periodically. US diplomats in Moscow or Russian diplomats in Washington or in London would be exposed as spies and they would be sent home. The cultural attaché in London at the Russian embassy turns out not to be the cultural attaché, not to have been sent there by Moscow in order to spread the good news about Russian literature and Russian art, but actually to be a gatherer of information, to be a runner of spy networks. The cultural attaché almost by definition is a spy. When it's revealed, it has consequences because the exposure means something has to be done. But it's not the revelation of a secret. Everybody knows what's going on. And Echo says, of the world of the 21st century, we still know what's going on. We're not being told something that is a scandal in the true sense, because it's in the public domain anyway. And then the other thing that is in the public domain is the content of these communications. So we discover what we already knew that the diplomats are gathering information and sending it back home. The other thing that we discover is that this information is not secret information. For instance, it turns out that American diplomats in Italy were telling their masters back in Washington that Silvio Berlusconi was a lecherous old man with a deeply dodgy private life, and therefore might be a security risk. This is meant to be shocking. They are saying this about a leading politician in an allied nation. But Echo says, they're also saying what anyone who's ever read an Italian newspaper, perhaps except for the ones owned by Berlusconi, but maybe even including the ones owned by Berlusconi, knows about Berlusconi. Silvio Berlusconi is a lecherous old man, is not news. It's public information. And what WikiLeaks shows, what WikiLeaks reveals, is that the secrets being passed around the world are secrets drawn from information that already exists in the public domain. The way he characterises it is that the so-called spies and spy masters are actually more like PR agents, the kind of person who might be tasked by a busy chief executive with every day coming up with a selection of press clippings so that the person who's too busy to read the newspapers carefully can know what is being said about him or her and about their business. And these diplomats are doing the same. They're gathering the information that people are talking about and sharing, nothing secret about it. And then they're packaging it up and sending it back home as a kind of shorthand or a shortcut so that the people who are their bosses can know what everybody knows so that they can avoid the risk not of not being in on the secret but having missed the obvious thing. It's more like PR than it is like espionage. It reminds me in a way of something that I've noticed in a completely different walk of life without any of the... (laughs) glamour or the intrigue. In universities, one of the challenges of an age of overwhelming volumes of information is to get people in government to pay attention to the stuff that the people in universities think is important. So universities are in the business of finding out new things, of coming up with new ideas or policies or techniques for doing things that would be useful to people who have the power to put them into practice more widely. So it might be some health fix that would save the government money, it might be some new development in tackling climate change, it might be some social policy, could be all sorts of things. And universities all around the world spend an extraordinary amount of their time and I know this from experience, trying to work out ways of getting the attention of politicians in a world where politicians are drowning in information. And sometimes it's thought that the way to do that is to package it up as special information for them. Here it is, we've got this new thing. We've discovered something which is outside of your normal range of informational sources. And we're going to give it to you as your own special document. So maybe we're going to come up with a, a tailored policy paper or a policy brief. We're going to package it up in a way that doesn't make it secret or private, but means that it's really targeted at the minister in question, the minister of health or whatever it is. Universities spend a lot of their time coming up with policy briefs, as they're called, which have something in common with diplomatic or ambassadorial briefs, messages, communication, special communications from the people supposedly in the know, to the people with the power, so that they have the information they need to take sensible, rational decisions, to spend money wisely, whatever it is, to achieve the policy goals that they've set out in their election manifesto. It's all well-intentioned. There's nothing sinister about this. It's not universities trying to secretly influence the secret circles that secretly run the world. It's just about trying to get the message across. And it doesn't work. Or it very, very rarely works. It turns out that's not the way to get politicians' attention, because they tend not to notice things that come packaged in a way that takes them outside of the run of the regular sources of information. Politicians like everyone else, and this is part of Echo's message in his essay, tend to notice what is already out there and fits in with what's already out there. Politicians spend a lot of time noticing what's in newspapers, what everybody is reading, public sources of information, such that if you want to get a message to a politician, you're more likely to succeed by channeling it or funneling it through a public source than a private source. Politicians read the same books that everyone reads. My guess is that in 1980, 1981, if you wanted to get a message to a politician, you probably needed to encode it somewhere in the name of the rose, because they were all reading it on their beach holidays like everybody else. The public domain is where information passes in a way that ensures that it gets noticed. I want to give one example of this. I have to apologise because somehow Donald Trump ends up in all of these talks. This is his only mention today. But it turned out during the presidency of Donald Trump, and this is backed up by lots of anecdotes from people who've written memoirs of that time, that it was almost impossible, and here's an extreme example here, almost impossible to get him to pay attention to any kind of policy document or brief. His attention span wasn't great enough. He got bored by the third line, He only really wanted to read things that were about himself. So he was very, very interested in hearing what had been said about him in newspapers, on TV. But he was not interested in a policy brief on the Middle East, to the point that even if you were very close to Trump, you worked in the next door room, you were one of his senior aides or advisors, and you wanted him, you really wanted him to get a message about something. Rather than opening the door, walking into the room next door and telling him. It was more efficient to feed that information to Fox News and have the people on Fox News relay it because Trump watched Fox News obsessively day after day and that's how the information came in. When these stories were told about Trump, it was treated as something of a scandal. Echo would say it's another fake scandal. They all do it. We all do it. It's how information moves in a world that has too much information. And he also says that it means that we all respond to this overwhelming volume of information in the digital age in a similar way, which is not the way that WikiLeaks would like to present what it is doing. The idea behind WikiLeaks was to expose conspiracies to expose the secret arrangements and undertakings that government officials make, particularly around matters of war and peace, that they hide from the rest of us. Echo says, actually, what WikiLeaks and things like WikiLeaks confirm is that we all read the world not as people looking for conspiracies, which is one thing, but as conspiracy theorists, which is something else. Because, as Echo says, the thing about conspiracy theorists is that they are not interested in new information. To be a conspiracy theorist on his account is to be someone who is always looking for whatever it is that confirms what they already know. The conspiracy theorist already knows that there's a conspiracy. What they are looking for is the evidence to tell them that they're right. And that's how most of us read and experience information in a world where there is too much information. It is incredibly hard to find the needle in the haystack, the evidence of the thing that we're not looking for. And when WikiLeaks dumps through the world's media on the world, millions and millions and millions of pages and words of information, of documents, tranches and tranches of documents, covering everything and nothing from the banal to the serious. We're not going to see the thing that we're not already looking for. We are going to see the thing that we were already looking for. Confirmation bias dominates in a world of new information because we can't see what's new. In a way, we can only see the new when there isn't too much for us to pay attention to, and then it might stand out. Otherwise, it's just millions of needles in the haystack And we pick out the one, we notice the ones that glint and shine at us because we recognise them. Incidentally, in this essay, Umberto Eco uses this to have a dig at the person who, by 2010, had completely supplanted him as the world's favourite supplier of not medieval murder mysteries, but murder mysteries with a medieval slant or a medieval tinge and that's dan brown the author of the da vinci code and angels and demons and books like that and echo says in notes on wikileaks as an aside this explains the extraordinary success of a writer like dan brown he doesn't tell you anything new the stories about the occult and the illuminati or whatever it is don't provide you with new information Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. So, not real conspiracies, conspiracy theories that the digital revolution makes conspiracy theorists of all of us: spies, spy masters, and the consumers of the information that they are basing their theories on. That is, the readers of newspapers, the watchers of TV. All of us are in the same boat. But Echo says. That's the thing that is actually different in the age of WikiLeaks. It is now all of us. So that's where he thinks if there is a crisis, the crisis lies. It's not that suddenly people are able to see things that are deeply secret and have now been revealed. That's not the crisis. That's the fake scandal. But what is true is that prior to the digital age, It was on the whole governments, states, people with power, who had access to the information that then would confirm their view of the world. They were able to draw on the widest possible range of information in order to look for whatever it was that they needed to remind them that they were right. But in the digital age we can do that about our governments as well. So we are no longer at the mercy of their decisions about what it is that we can see that might or might not confirm what it is that we think about them. We can look anywhere and everywhere for the information that reinforces and reminds us what it is we think we already know. They're good guys. They're bad guys. We hate them. We like them. America is great. America is evil. Whatever it is, we can now do what governments used to do, which is trawl the information landscape for the thing that we want. But Echo says, being completely honest about this, none of us are actually going to do that. We don't have the appetite, the resources to do what governments used to do and still do, which is really to look as widely as possible, not in the secret world, but in the public world for the information that confirms whatever it is that they want to be true and therefore want to do. Individuals, individual citizens don't have the time. The promise, the false promise, as Echo would say, of the digital revolution, which is that it would put power in the hands of ordinary citizens because it would make politics and government transparent so that we could see the things that were previously hidden. That, he says, is not going to happen, one, because we're not going to see things that are hidden, and two, because none of us has the time or the appetite to genuinely survey the information landscape, the field in which so much stuff is out there. We are going to become more and more reliant on the people who will edit and filter and shape this information for us, far from doing away with the gatekeepers Far from doing away with the people who are the conduits between the mass of information and the story that gets told, all of us are going to be more and more reliant on the storytellers. Now, WikiLeaks could have become one such storyteller, and I'm going to tell a story in a moment about why that didn't happen. But at least the possibility of turning this fake scandal into a genuine crisis would have relied on an organization, and if it wasn't WikiLeaks, maybe it would have to be The Guardian or The New York Times or whoever taking this vast tranche of information, and finding in it, and communicating from that, the story that confirms what it is that people who want to turn this into a crisis feel that they know, that makes it hard for the American government or the American state to keep functioning in that way. But the information won't do it. The volume of information certainly won't do it. Someone or something has to do it for us. The conclusion that Echo draws from this is a theme that, as he says, he has been talking about a lot in other essays and other pieces of journalism that he was writing at the time. His big conclusion about technology and technological revolutions is, as he puts it, that far from these big technological shifts being a leap into the future, technology often moves us backwards, or at least sideways. Backwards like a crayfish, he says, or sideways like a crab. Technology is not the transformative force in our world that takes us from the past to the future, bypassing the present. It often takes us from the present back to the past. It's an argument that is reminiscent of one that was made in a brilliant book published a few years before this essay in 2006, by the British historian David Edgerton called The Shock of the Old, playing on the idea of the shock of the new, the idea of particularly in art. Robert Hughes's book, The Avant-Garde, is the shock of the new. Edgerton says, technology is often the shock of the old. The shock being, it hasn't changed our world. It has reinforced existing patterns. It has re-established old truths. One of the examples that Edgerton gives is that at the time he was writing... 2006, there were more bicycles in the world than at any point in human history. The bike, far from being supplanted by other supposedly quicker or more efficient forms of technology, reasserts its essential qualities for many, many people each time there's a technological revolution. And Echo, in his essay, also talks about transport as one of these examples. With each great leap forward, it seems to take longer to get from A to B. It takes longer to get across London now than it did 10 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago. Technology clogs up our world and makes people more and more reliant on the things that they know, that they are familiar with, that they can trust. In the case of the information revolution, one of Echo's conclusions is actually what it has done is re the hold of both old and new media. So it's not just old media. Clearly, the media landscape is itself volatile and new players come along, not offering to do the transparency thing, because nobody can do that, but offering to do the filtering, storytelling, you know you're right thing. So Fox News comes along, or whoever it is, and now Fox News is under threat from other rivals. But the point is, this is not something that has swept away the middle people, the people between the information and the citizens who can use it, understand it, access it, and then take on governments with the aid of it. It has reinforced their hold. He is describing in 2010 a world in which, far from people finding out new things, everybody is converging on the same often relatively tired storytellers fighting for access to the people who can shape public opinion. Those relationships are more important than ever. The PR relationships, for want of a better phrase. It's still a PR world. It's the shock of the old. And he also says at the end of the essay, that if you think about what it would be in this world, to have and to try and communicate actual secrets, because government presumably still does have secrets. There must be some things that people in government, and indeed people outside of government, want to share with each other that they really, really don't want to see the light of day. How would you do it in the age of WikiLeaks? How would you do it? The technology promises secure encryption new ways, faster, sleeker, more efficient for information to ping around the world so that you can be sure that only the people in the know get it. WikiLeaks does at least make anyone paying attention have grounds not to believe a word of that. Actually, Echo says, playfully but also seriously, government officials who want to share secrets are increasingly in this world, in this tech up world going to want to do it in ways that would be recognisable 500 years ago, face-to-face, secrets shared by people meeting, he says, in a stagecoach or a carriage. Book a horse-drawn carriage, sit in the back, stuff something in the driver's ears, and then share your secrets. Meet each other in dark places. Talk to each other in alleyways, in the corridors, off the corridors, off the corridors. Find a room, get a room. In this digital world, it's more, not less, analog. It's more, not less personal and interpersonal, the communication where the really secret stuff happens. Far from this revolution having ushered us into an age of openness and transparency, the volume of information that we are all drowning in has pushed the real secrets further and further underground to the margins but particularly to the places where people have face to face human to human personal relationships as echo says at the end of this essay the safest place probably to keep a secret in this world is in your head and the safest way to communicate it so that you can be sure it gets communicated to the person that you want to hear it and only that person is to whisper it in their ear there is one more thing I want to talk about here, and it's, it's not Echo's essay, it's another essay, another great, great essay about WikiLeaks and about Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. It was published in the London Review of Books in 2014 by the novelist and writer Andrew O'Hagan. O'Hagan had been commissioned by a publisher to ghostwrite Julian Assange's autobiography. And this is at roughly the same time 2010-11 that Echo was writing about WikiLeaks and it's it's hard to reconstruct it now but this was though as Echo says in many ways a fake scandal still one of the biggest stories in the world and Julian Assange was one of the most famous people in the world an object of absolute fascination loathing for some people reverence for others but There was definitely a market for Assange's autobiography, and O'Hagan was commissioned to write it. And at this point, Julian Assange was living in Britain. He was under threat of being extradited to Sweden, where he was facing charges of rape. And so he was living under very, very restricted conditions in the UK while he was fighting that extradition request. It required, among other things, that he had to check into a police station every day. This was before he then moved into the Ecuadorian embassy in order to evade this and before where he is now, which is in Belmarsh Prison. The Swedes having finally dropped their extradition charges, but that threat has been replaced by the threat that he always really feared, which was to be extradited to the United States to face charges of conspiracy. So the story is still ongoing, though I don't think Julian Assange is anymore one of the most famous people in the world. And WikiLeaks doesn't get discussed much anymore. But at this time, this was a big, big story. O'Hagan says that the reason he was drawn to it was partly because Julian Assange is a fascinating person, but it was more because of what WikiLeaks represented. And I think O'Hagan would say that Umberto Eco isn't really being fair here. There is more to WikiLeaks than Eco suggests, because in this vast tranche of information that had been revealed were things of genuine importance that were not well known stories, connections, conspiracies, actual conspiracies that had been revealed and exposed something, the dark underbelly of the global order, in which certain kinds of deals and undertakings. Are done and are never discussed. And different countries' politics are shaped and influenced and corrupted by these deals. And in that vast tranche of information, there were stories to be told that needed to be told because they weren't known. But as O'Hagan says, none of that is going to happen simply by putting the information out there because no one has the capacity to find that stuff. It requires expertise. It requires resources, the resources either of a a newspaper or of a major non-governmental organization. It requires time. And it requires finding ways to publish this information so that it gets read, that challenge of where do you put the policy papers so that people will read them. So Hagen assumes that that must be the journey that WikiLeaks is on, the one that I mentioned earlier, from being an organization that dumps stuff in the world to expose the nefariousness of the US government, to an organisation that, to use a hideous word, curates or tailors the information in a way that it it reveals the needles in the haystack. It finds them and it reveals them. And it reveals them by writing them up as stories that people can understand. That's the job. And at one point, In his relationship with Julian Assange, he is involved in an attempt to try and persuade Assange that this is what WikiLeaks has to do. Forget the autobiography, forget the Julian Assange story. What it needs is a series of publications, expertly done, well-written, that find those stories and tell them about obscure parts of the world, about obscure branches of the US government. But it looks, finds what people will not find for themselves but that is not what happened. What O'Hagan discovered is that Julian Assange himself personally was not interested in that. He was only interested really in two things. The first was the scandal, that is, He thought genuine scandal, Echo would say fake scandal, of throwing out into the world all of this supposedly secret stuff, stuff that wasn't meant to be public, making it public. The mere act of that for Assange is what he was in in this game to do, to be the person who puts it out there. And every time he was in trouble or he didn't know what to do, he just dumped more information online or gave it out in such a way that he could say, we're still throwing this stuff out there. And then the other thing that it turns out Julian Assange was interested in was what people were saying about him. He wanted to know as much, maybe more, than Donald Trump. What people thought of Julian Assange, that was the absolutely central theme at this point of his life. And he was running WikiLeaks like a kind of cult, This is what O'Hagan discovered when he spent time not quite living with, but almost living with or in the court of Julian Assange. It was absolutely the shock of the old, the shock of the old with laptops. But what it felt like was not quite, but almost a medieval cult. And it was a world of conspiracy theorists. And like all conspiracy theorists, the thing that perhaps most shocks O'Hagan about Assange is how incurious he is. All of this information that he has access to, that he's found, or has been given by whistleblowers, and then has put out there, he's not interested in interrogating it. He's not interested in searching it to find the things that he and other people like him didn't know. O'Hagan says that he is struck in the time that he knows Assange, that he doesn't ask questions He never asks questions. He only wants to know either what he already knows or what other people are saying about him. That's the new information he cares about. And it turns out that, therefore, in Assange's world, everything starts to turn on personal relationships. He is obsessed with his relationships with the people in the old media. So a Hagen, who's meant to be trying to tell the story of Assange's life has to sit there for hour after hour after hour, as this paranoid narcissist rehearses over and over again his grudges against the editor of The Guardian, the editor of the New York Times, the journalists who he thought were working with him, and who he concludes have betrayed him. And how have they betrayed him? They betrayed him by sharing his secrets. The thing that Assange can't bear is when people put into the public domain things that he believes belong to him, which, to put it mildly, is ironic, coming from the founder of WikiLeaks. And it turns out that this is what scuppers the autobiography, because he does also spend time telling Andrew O'Hagan about his early life, about his family, about some of his relationships. And then when O'Hagan says, right, this is the stuff that we can use to construct an autobiography that people might actually want to read because, he says, Julian, you do know that your manifesto, your ideas, your beliefs, they've got to be packaged in a way that people actually want to read them. If you just put a highfalutin manifesto out there, the, the WikiLeaks manifesto, nowhere near as many people are going to read it as will read it if you couch that in your life story. But Assange says but you can't put that stuff out in the public domain. That's my information. That's about me. I shared that with you. We were in a room. Yes, you had a tape recorder running. Let's ignore that. We were in a room. I was I was whispering you my secrets. You're the Assange whisperer. You want to put it in a book? And O'Hagan says, but you signed a contract to write an autobiography. What did you think was going to be in it? And Assange says, my ideas. And that, along with Julian Assange's complicated and difficult relationship with other human beings is where the whole project breaks down. What O'Hagan discovers with WikiLeaks is an organisation that is not doing what it would need to do to move to the next phase, which is to become not a dumper of information, but a, a teller of stories. And what it has turned to into instead is both a dumper of information and a hoarder of secrets. And this is because of the personality of its founder, Julian Assange. So I think, if you'll forgive the pun, that that story, O'Hagan trying to write a book with Julian Assange, does echo what Echo said in his thoughts on WikiLeaks. It is the shock of the old. It is like the name of the rose with laptops. And therefore, I think there's one big conclusion that can be drawn from this. It's not what Echo says, but I think it's implicit, not just in this essay, but in much of what he writes, fiction and nonfiction, which is that the thing that isn't true is that information is power. Information is not power. Information is just information. And in the world that we live in, the sheer volume of information... The amount of it that is dumped day after day after day in the public domain means that we are drowning in information. It's not that information is power, but the appetite, the ability, the capacity to shape information, to package it in a way that it gets attention in the public domain, that is power. That's where real power lies. And there are two things to be said about that power. First, a lot of it is personal not least because the interpreting of the information is often going to be shaped by personal prejudice. But second, it is hard work to have the appetite, the capacity, the resources in a world that is drowning in information to shape information in a way that it will reach a wide audience is not for everyone. And indeed, most people will never have the chance to do it it will belong to a few and it will probably belong to people who already had the power this is the shock of the old one of the things that new technology does is it reinforces pre-existing structures of power because the capacity to exploit that technology belongs to people who already have power in the world and that is not a new story that is a very very old story. To find out more about this podcast, do please follow us on Twitter at ppfideas. Tomorrow, we've reached the final day in the 12 Days of Christmas essay series, and the subject of the last episode is Tanishee Coates's essay, The Case for Reparations.